Welcome to the Social World Podcast. It's been a while. Uh, school's in full swing, and I'm working on grad school applications, so my time has been pretty limited. So I apologize if you've been waiting, but here we are for episode three. On today's episode, I have Lee Wendell. Lee is an early European historian whose main interests are centered around Christianity. We talk about early. We talk about uh, popular scholarly works. Uh, as well as religion today and in the past, and a lot more. I was really excited to get a historian on the podcast, and Lee offers a unique perspective with her approach to history. So with that being said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Okay, I'm here with Lee Wandel. Lee, how's it going? Good, good. So I start every podcast with the same framing questions. Uh, I'm curious, what is your favorite book, or maybe your most influential historian for you? Um, two separate answers to that question. I was thinking about one book that I loved as an undergraduate and I continue to go back to as a model, and that's Richard Southern's The Making of the Middle Ages. It's 50 or 60 years old now, but it tries to do something that I think is terrific. It tries to ask and answer a very big question and it brings together society, politics, and religion in a way that I find compelling. Mm -hmm. Personally, I guess I would put forward Montaigne as an author I discovered as a graduate student and I return to over and over again for the ways in which he thinks about being human, what it means to live in the world. And so has those books been influential in how you approach history as a historian? Yes. Um, Southern's posing of a question and seeing all of these different aspects of society as interrelated but not in ways that certainly seemed obvious before he wrote um, is something I aim for in my own work. Um, And in the case of Montaigne, that sense that every human being is unique uh, was an affirmation of a way of thinking that I had really started to arrive at as an undergraduate. And so, uh, an Alka flip question I just asked, um, how's like your life course shaped you? Why did you choose the academic path you chose? I knew when I was a high school student that I wanted to teach in a university. Um, it took me a while to work out what I wanted to teach. <laughs> and um, that was sort of trial and error, um, thinking about my undergraduate career and the teachers who encouraged me and the teachers, I think equally significantly, who were discouraging. Um, And I remained as an undergraduate, I wanted to study humankind, and I wanted to study it in many different aspects. I ended up working in the early modern period through a series of accidents, but it is a period that fascinates me. It's funny how the serendipity of life and things just happen, but I myself too am interested in the study of humankind and interdisciplinary focuses and stuff like that, I think are always informative. Yes. Uh, so you said you had many different interests at first. So um, if you could have any PhD level knowledge beyond history, is there anything that stands out? Well, what's interesting to me is realizing um, what I didn't know as an undergraduate and learning about oneself that what my hobby reading, if I could put it that way, would be in geology and in the mm. natural world. So it would not be a supplemental degree in the kinds of work that I've done for my, um, for my entire professional life. 
it would really be to do something completely different, to go out and go back to something I loved as a high school student, studying rocks and their history. That's interesting because for me, like, I, that's all I want to study. And then if I, yeah, I'm looking for like supplemental information on how related fields can inform me about my right. primary focus. Right. Is there a certain, other than maybe that you studied it when you are younger, is it, you know, that you enjoyed it in the past? Or is it because like, there are like, truths that are easy to find in geology necessarily? No, it really is. uh, I think that human beings are always more complex. And certainly for me, uh, it was a decision to exclude as much as to include that working on early modern Europe allows me to do much that is fascinating. But it isn't by any measure all of my interests. And um, a part of what my work doesn't really facilitate is, for instance, spending time in the mountains or um, spending time in the desert, both of which I did as a high school student, and both of which I found deeply fascinating. But you chose, and you're, you're now a historian, so what do you think your role is as a historian? I. When people ask me, how did I end up as a historian, I bring forward my grandmother, who told all of us stories of our family when I was growing up. And so I grew up in a household in which human beings lived in time, and the sense of generations, and the sense that things change, but things are passed on, that those two are intertwined in every human life. Um, And so I come to history with a with a very deep sense that we tell stories about ourselves in order to find our way in the world. And those stories are set in time, and they organize time in certain ways. And so uh, that is what both underpins my work as a historian, but also is a kind of wellspring for my fascination with history. How do you, so how do you balance when you're a historian? How do you, when you're doing history, do you focus on looking for an objective or quote-unquote objective view of the past? Are you more interested in how we perceive the past and how we tell those stories? I don't actually think there is an objective view of the past. I think different people tell different stories. As you know from 119, I talk about evidence. Mm -hmm. What is our evidence? And um, some pieces of evidence fall away with one story and are taken up by another story. That's part of how historiography works. Another set of skills is what methods does a historian bring to bear? And finally, how does a a historian situate him or herself? As you also know, I begin 119 by talking about being a Californian, and that changes my perspective. It changes the mental landscape I bring with me when I look at the sources that we read together. Um, And I think those are ways that history is not fiction, but it also, its claim for any objective reality is uh, problematic since it's so deeply human an activity. And the field of psychology, I think, yeah. would well uh, yes. support yeah. your, uh, your approach to history and how you think about it. Yeah. Um, so talking more on history, what value do you see in your research in pre-modern and early modern Europe? Well, I see two different kinds. Um, uh, Early modern Europe, to many people, my son included, is just dead people. It's really the past. 
Um, but those stories continue to shape our present moment, and they shape it in ways that I think we need to examine. We certainly need to be aware of. Um, in my own work, a lot of what I've tried to do is engage with narratives that I found troubling for a range of reasons. Uh, just this morning in the lecture, I was talking about how historically the story of Columbus and uh, Columbus entering a ship and ultimately crossing the Atlantic um, is kept separate from the story of the Reformation and seen as, uh, the Reformation is seen as a European event Columbus's sailing is seen as an Atlantic event. But those two events occur within a very brief period of one another, and to put them together changes both stories. Mm -hmm. um, and you said there's like certain things that we need to look at in the past to help us better inform us about now. Can you give us like a case study? One of the things that I think early modern does best of all is to suggest first, it could have been otherwise. There is so much accident in history, and accidents such as Columbus getting the funding and surviving crossing the Atlantic, accidents that shape subsequent events. But the other is to invite students to discover that things have not always been this way, and so that much of what may feel um, to take an example of race relations right now, mm. that something that feels as though it is intractable, if we set it into a larger temporal framework, it, be, it, it changes. It doesn't become permanent. It doesn't become the way things have to be. Yeah, and I think that's a huge problem with the way humans think about things. We get so sucked up into the narratives of daily life and just, and not only how things change from day to day, but also we just accept the status quo and yes. we're so used to just think, oh, well, that's how things are. And yes, and I think it's really problematic and both on how we conceptualize the past, but how we work with the present. Yes. Yes. Um, and another thing, how just history just happens sometimes. One, one thing I always think about is just like the rise of Christianity when Rome was starting to fall. And I think about, well, what if Rome was actually, you know, still steady during that time? Where would Christianity be today? And stuff like that. And just, mm -hmm. I know it's, it's the looking at history and doing the what if. I know it's sometimes frowned upon, but for me, um, it's sometimes just impossible for me not to do. I think what if questions are good in general in the sense that they remind us that this is not inexorable. I mean, I'm a modern historian. That means that I don't believe that history is providential. This is not a divine plan. Um, uh, and I approach history as a human phenomenon, which means that human beings are taking choices. Human beings are not able to foresee the consequences of their own choices. And when we go back and ask those what-if questions, we are allowing both for the accidents that I've already talked about, but also that the outcomes that ultimately we do study are not themselves written in stone. So um, I mentioned like Rome and Christianity rising. As a historian of religion and specifically Christianity, how do you see like Christianity's life course across history? 
One of the things that I talk about when I teach the history of Christianity is that it's a brilliantly adaptive religion. Uh, and I would say all the great world religions are religions that, that human beings make their own and that they don't exist in some abstract pure form, but they are lived. And Christianity uh, is a religion that has invited very different kinds of people into um, seeing the world in its terms. And I think there's always a tension, and there is historically always a tension between what um, I think any historian would agree to call orthodoxy, what is accepted uh, by the authorities of the time as being that which they teach, and what they themselves would designate as heresy, that is to say paths that they do not authorize. But those that's a shifting relationship, what constitutes orthodoxy and what constitutes mm. heresy, and also it gives us a sense, a quick marker of the sheer breadth of ways that human beings are, are entering into. Uh, a heretic does not see him or herself as not Christian. A heretic sees his or her way of thinking as authorized by the originating texts. And so um, maybe you want to talk about then the Reformation and Luther and how he saw himself and what his intended consequences were and then the reality. He um, certainly, he saw himself and he uses language to see himself as the vessel of God, that God fills him and speaks out from him. He saw scripture as um, almost a physical um, presence of, of God's voice. Um, uh, and he, that was an electrifying relationship for him. I think he was, well, this is, this is, this is where I enter into my own interpretation of his life, mm. because um, moving past those claims which are rooted in Luther's own self-representation, self Luther's writings are not simply polemical, but they are, many, many of them are simply ad hoc. They are in addressing a specific instance, and when they are taken up by someone else who is not encompassed in that first instance, he will react by writing something else, and there's a, a, a violence to his writing, uh, which speaks to how unexpected the response, the for instance, the language of the priesthood of all believers is taken up by lay people to mean that everyone can read the Bible and everyone has access to God's truth. And Luther finally finds that terrifying, that that is an abyss for him, mm -hmm. that is entering into sheer chaos. Um, so he will oppose it quite violently. Um, there are... The, and. And there are unforeseen consequences also that, that I, speaking more closely to the material I know, when he speaks about the Eucharist and his unwillingness to say, this is what this means. Um, he instead says, this is God's word, take it as God's word. And one of the things he will not do is enter into different understandings of that word. Mm -hmm. For him, the word is the word is the word. Um. Related to that, how did the printing press play in this with his, um, what, would he, what he was doing? There are a range of scholars on this question, um, from those who think that the Reformation is unimaginable without the printing press, and one of the what-ifs, 
Um, to those who think that the printing press is fairly secondary to the Reformation, um, the facts are these, that the printing press was a technology that um, Europeans were um, increasingly enthusiastically using. The printing press predates Luther, but he is by any measure a brilliant appropriator of the possibilities of the printing press. He uses it in ways that um, um, a number of scholars have called attention to, which are not necessarily innovative as much as um, effective in ways that may be said to have been unprecedented. And some historians have called uh, the connection between the printing press and the internet and the way it distributes ideas and the effects it has on society. One historian uh, specifically was Neil Ferguson who makes the claim that um, we are closer to the Reformation, the people in the Reformation, than we are to the 20th century because of the role the internet and the, and the printing press have played in our respective lives. It's a strange way of thinking. I find um, those kinds of sweeping arguments, I, I observe how popular they are, how compelling they are, that people take them up, that they are influential. But it is to erase so much of what makes the 16th century uh, the 16th century. It's a decision to take one thing and to view it through 20th century lenses. Um, uh, the printing press in the 16th century could not speak to all people. Uh, there, is, uh, there is a separate body of argument about what percentage of Europeans had access to print. And I myself, since it's nearly impossible to make a data collection, I myself am not going to enter into the speculation that there were those such as Luther who were brilliant about its potentialities. Calvin, brilliant. Mm -hmm. uh, the Jesuits, brilliant about the potentialities of print. Uh, so too, I'd say that in the 20th century, there were those who were brilliant about the internet and its potentialities. I think we're finding that the internet actually is working in very different ways, that it, um, uh, the dark web, for instance, the ways in which um, uh, uh, it can be hacked, that it's not material, it is turning out to be a very important component of thinking about the internet, that it is something to which people can get access with electricity, but it is also something that not everyone trusts and therefore large swaths of the human population may or may not even use it. Um, so those kinds of comparisons, when you take a look at the actual, with the, to the data that we have about each one, become problematic. And maybe these claims are, are you know, they get so influential just because like the creativity of the claim, it's like a really imaginative, it's and a very thought-provoking claim. claim. It's something yes. that goes beyond the reins of what previous people have suggested. And so just the, I, just the, material that the claim is made out of itself is created. Well, I think, I, think I mean, this is, um, uh, historians become characterized as curmudgeons when we say things are more complicated. Someone such as Neil Ferguson is widely read. He's a best-selling mm. author, but part of the reason why he's best-selling is he makes the world comfortable. To claim that the 16th century and the 20th century are somehow closer um, is to draw some stark comparisons and to let fall away whatever would 
qualify those claims. It's a decision about what I bring forward. You know, go back to my point, what evidence would I like to bring forward? Um, You know that I start 119 by talking about the absence of the internet, the absence of air travel, the absence of, of railways and automobiles and electricity, the absence of indoor plumbing, that that communication simply took much longer, that one of the things that um, Ferguson's argument would lead then is that if Luther said something in Wittenberg, it might take two weeks to travel. If someone says something in Washington, you know as they're speaking because there is digital communication. And yeah, and I think we're just coming back to these points of stepping back from the lives we live in and what we take for granted yes and just realize how dramatically yes. different is the past compared to what it is now yes and you know don't take everything for granted and understand how yes with these things that we take for granted how they play a role and how they don't play a role in their in the past yes and then also um the interplay between pop history or whatever you want to call it and actual you know or more yes. like scholarly you know history and how the arguments are made and what caveats are made, I think is important. Well, this is why, to go back to my choice of Southern, um, uh, that Southern was a historian whose book, this book is still in print. Hmm. This book is still in paperback. It's still being used. Undergraduates are still reading it. Um, the care of the scholarship makes it, it, it's not that it's unassailable. Certainly it has been contested. It has provoked argument and disagreement. But the care of the scholarship is such that teachers trust to put it in the hands of undergraduates. A very different kind of history which gets a kind of quick sale. Um, But if you look for the book 10 years out, you will find that the book has already been abandoned because the scholarship is not sturdy. Uh, And I think that all possibles There are scholars who only write for the people who work in their field, and there are scholars who largely write only for a broad readership who don't know the materials and therefore cannot know what's being left out or what's being included. That's something that's like totally in other fields too, especially within psychology. Like pop psychology is a huge thing of, you see all these little articles on Facebook and then you see pop psychology books of like interpreting your dreams. Yes. And then as a major, then you actually read the real work and you see, you know, how fragile some of this research is. And yes. you can see why certain yes. Keystone books can last a test yes. of time. Yes, yes, yes. So I think that's, I think it's important to realize, you know, what you are reading and what arguments are being made. Yes. And kind of just don't accept that, you know, like read something critically and analytically and just don't read it, you know. Well, and, and that question that I ask people to make their own. What is the evidence here? What is the evidence? And the question that's much harder to answer is what's being left out. Often we can't know what's being left out because we're not experts, but we can pause and think um, whose voices are not here, who's not being included in this particular way of telling the story. And I've noticed at one point, there was a psychologist that I really, really, really liked, and I just didn't. And I took everything for granted what he said. And when now I've become more skeptical, and I've now I'm looking back at my past self and sort of sort of questioning what I believed. And I think it's important to you know make these because like it didn't ruin my relationship or how much I like the podcast or no, right. or the right. psychologist, but I improved the quality of 
yes. of what I'm receiving and yes. I'm taking in the good things and I'm sure I'm still taking in some bad things, but I'm filtering out some of the other bad good. things. How do you see the um, relationship between knowledge and technology and globalization to religion and today? You... I think it's changed the entire equation. Um, I think that many people are stepping away from more conventionally um, well, it's an interesting question. What scholars are finding is that people step away from what we call organized religion. That is to say, religion that has, a, a, for instance, a building within which people gather. Um, uh, but that's not entirely true. It turns out that people frequently, when they start having children, return to the religion of their childhoods. Whether they remain in those communities is less clear. Um, but that the internet means that some religions are reaching people who may not have access to a building, and it's not a face-to-face -face community. It also, to come to your, the third component in this, knowledge. Um, knowledge, I think, this is a real crisis for all of us who work in the university, that the internet has, it's not simply that it's made knowledge more accessible, which is terrific. Wikipedia is an amazing way of, of thinking about organizing knowledge. But if you go on the internet, what you'll find are debate groups surrounding, to take Wikipedia as an example, that some Wikipedia entries are done by people who don't actually work in the field but have an opinion, which is something different. And yet Wikipedia which has tried to put in place controls for that kind of intervention, cannot possibly control all of the people who decide that they know what the truth is, but they haven't done what a scientist would tell you was good process of acquisition of knowledge. Um, cases, testing those cases to see if they're representative or they're anomalous. These kinds of, of questions are less and less a part of the so-called knowledge which is made available on the internet. The, the language of fake news mm. is uh, in some ways a very inaccurate way to talk about what I would suggest is a spectrum from material that is on the internet that is the product of years of research and analysis, the method and the data is explicit, you have access to them, you can judge whether the data and the, the analysis mm. are trustworthy to something that is I would characterize as pure speculation, but as being presented as fact. And, and the 19th century organization of the, of the kind of vetting of knowledge that universities and professional societies would guarantee the authenticity of certain kinds of knowledge, and that comes also back to religion, that seminaries um, uh, and, and um, hierarchies of education would offer a kind of training for what we might call clergy or rabbis or priests of various kinds who would provide leadership to these communities. And again, those institutions are largely on, in decline and the internet is offering to substitute. So that to take one example that I think is extremely popular, people can be certified to perform a wedding yeah. over the internet. Yeah. And, and that, that sense that the knowledge is accessible on the internet, but it's also not governed anymore by any recognized bodies who are 
collectively, socially recognized to, to possess the authority to make decisions about what is knowledge. There's, there's certain, and going back to podcasts, there's a certain podcast that's extremely popular among a lot of people, and they bring on these professionals, and then they just, then like people listen to it, and then they, then they come away with it thinking that they know, and they don't question that. Yes, and yes. I've talked about this before in my podcast, and I think it's something I'm concerned with, I think a lot of people are concerned yes, with. Yes, yes, yes. Especially with thing, but like, how do you promote that, like critical thinking, and making like you know making these judgments on the calls that people well are this making. is where i mean i think of 119 as my beginning intervention against this i think about for instance um the podcast where a so-called expert gets up and speaks for an hour and they go viral mm-hmm. and the person who is the so-called expert there's no there's no way of demonstrating that person is an expert or not um so the question I posed to undergraduates in 119, that question is a useful question for life. What is the evidence? What is the evidence and what is the method? It's insufficient for me to say, I know this, therefore you should believe me. That is not a reason to believe what someone is saying. Um, nor is it a reason because they wear an expensive suit, nor is it a reason that they appear in um, a digital format of some kind, nor is it a reason that somebody puts a mic in front of them standing in front of a building. Um, uh, The culture of experts, which has grown exponentially in my lifetime, has really blurred what an expert is and, and how do we determine that a person's voice is reliable. So, um, going back to your study of religion and the Reformation, how does your personal experience of religion interact with your professional and academic study of religion? Well, I, um, I grew up a Unitarian. That's a piece of information I don't always share, but I grew up in a tradition that the most Christian churches do not recognize as belonging to it. Um, And it is a religion which absolutely sees itself as a Christian religion, but it uh, questions whether Jesus is indeed God. So uh, this is, uh, now I can speak as a Reformation historian, this is heresy uh, for most Christian traditions. It engages with the question of incarnation. um, uh, And I find to my considerable bemusement that the question of incarnation is a core question in the work and the research that I do because I have come to see that it is not a unifying doctrine at all but one which both makes Christianity as powerful as it is because it begins with the affirmation that God in the in the language which so many different Christians will use God became flesh the word became flesh God became human Um, what that means different Christians will understand in quite different ways and that becomes a point of fascination for me and that's how I approach the 16th century yeah I think that's interesting to kind of look at your um, your personal experience and how religion came to you and then how you come to religion and how that informs how you approach history as well as your just general interest in history yes Um, But it also informs it in another way, that unlike most of the people who work in my field, I do not come from one of the traditions that are at the center of Reformation scholarship. I am very much an outsider, and for many years I thought that that was a liability, but the older I get, 
the more I have come to believe that being an outsider allows me to see what many of the people who work within those traditions do not. Looking across our history, I mean, I'm, I'm primarily interested in like ancient and medieval and early modern, but I'm also been taking, I've taken classes and, mm-hmm. you know, mo- modern history. And mm-hmm. so I see religion as always this main actor. And it's hard for me not to just think that religion has been like the most influential thing. And it's a huge claim to make. Well, I would certainly claim that religion is one of the key factors in any historical period. Um, and it works in many different ways. Um, we think about the power of forging a sense of human community. Um, uh, I um, am at odds with all the materialists who would like to tell us that religion is located in the human mind. I think that that is to denigrate the experiences of millions of people over the entire history of humankind. It's to deny them the the authenticity of their own experience of what I might call the numinous. Their sense that there is something bigger than any human being. Um, and again, I'm using spatial language, mm. but to begin to speak about something which is not um, or not only human, but something which is beyond human is uh, and is experienced physically mm-hmm. as well as psychologically, as well as emotionally, as well as intellectually. Um, and that that is not only powerful that but for significant portions of any population I've ever studied, it's definitive. It is a way of orienting oneself in the world. It is a way of making sense. It is a way of understanding one's relationship to other human beings. It is a way of understanding one's relationship to the, to the natural world, to the sky, to the water. Um, uh, so that I would say it is, it, to, to speak of religion as a historical actor is to abstract it from the human beings for whom it is essential. And for me, I'm interested in the psychological study of religion, and I think a tightrope I walk is yes. respecting that experience and like, and just giving like an understanding and being careful because it is something that is so deeply personal and is community, and you know it it is your it helps interpret the world and stuff like that. One of the one of the problems that I have seen in my own um, community of scholars, and exists more generally. Um, the decision on the part of many university academics to position themselves as atheists and also, I mean, I think everyone has a right to say whether he or she believes in God. I think that's a, that is a part of human difference. But it's the, their own kind of fundamentalism that atheism is the only truth. And this for me is highly problematic because it denies the the reality of the experience of those who who tell us that they have known God in one way or another and their language differs God is is uh, largely a uh, a word that we now use or the divinity or we look for some way of referring to this this experience which is extra human um, and I think that the struggle, in particular for the social sciences, uh, has been to 
not simply to acknowledge that, but to find analytic knowledge which doesn't denigrate it to superstition or because these are these are historical roots of these fields that these approach religion as outsiders. And not ultimately, most do not approach religion from within as a reality which is shared by populations. And that's something I was going to say is as an as an atheist, like I, I feel like I get caught up in my own belief and my own lack of belief, I guess. And I, I don't validate other people's and I don't, and I try to, and I try to respect, but I don't think I really am. And at some fundamental level, I don't think I am respecting like people's experiences of religion. And just because I think that I don't experience it doesn't mean someone else doesn't experience it. Right, right. And, and one of the things that I think is hardest is that in a human life, um, my mother became an atheist because her father died. Mm. And I think that a relationship to a divinity is not fixed for all time in any human life. And that atheism may be a conversion experience, a decision, as it was in the case of my mother, to reject the existence of God because what God would allow her father to die. And there are many people who, for analogous reasons, announce themselves to be atheists or um, because they see it as the only possible position for the work that they've chosen to do. But that does not exclude the possibility, A, that they will at some point experience God, a divinity, something numinous, that will change their minds. And, And it doesn't under any circumstances provide justification for claiming that their experience is normative and the only reality. And yeah, and I like the idea of thinking about religion and the life course and how certain things yes. can happen. Yes. So ending um what keeps you up at night, maybe like related to your research or I um I have said over generations to the students who have come to me thinking about working in my field that if you aren't up at night with your work, then this is not the work for you. Um, the financial compensations are simply not great enough mm-hmm. to to justify doing this. So there are two different kinds of questions which will keep me awake at night. One are deeply creative questions, and they're trying to make sense out of out of my own research, and those can get me up in the middle of the night and, and you will uh, you would find that I have a pad of paper that might have showed up next to my bed where I've written down, oh, this is the solution to this puzzle that has been at the back of my mind for a couple of weeks now. Um, the other is actually increasingly teaching that as higher education has come under such an assault, mm-hmm. um, how I can not only reach students, but I can help them to find the joy in the world of the university, that this is a place of extraordinary magic, and that so many students arrive under pressure from their families, um, with, with little support in a larger public discourse, to discover, simply to grow as a human being and to discover what is a meaningful life for that, again, to go back to Montaigne, that unique person 
what will be meaningful for you? What will be meaningful for another student sitting in my class this morning that will make your life um, rewarding to you for your lifetime? Um, uh, and so I find myself these days also up in the middle of the night thinking about what are the questions? How do I make my class a place of magic and wonder um, when, when there is so little public support for it? Well, I think that's a great way to end it. I think it's <laughs> inspiring and influential as a future, or hopefully a future academic. So. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. This was fun. This was fun.